Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Howdy, howdy. Welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth year medical student studying naturopathic medicine. And this episode will be the second to last time that you ever hear me say that because in two and a half weeks, I will be graduated with a big D little R right in front of my name instead of just my name. Eek! Anyways, I am specializing in women's health, specifically women's gut and hormone health. In case you didn't get the hint, this is a women's health podcast. If that's not why you're here, um, you can turn back now, but hey, you also might learn something, so stick around if you like. This episode is probably going to be a little bit shorter than usual, as I just got back from Mexico two weeks ago, and then I just got back from Los Angeles yesterday, Um, and I'm also trying to finish up all my graduation requirements and all the ins and outs of becoming a doctor, so to put it bluntly, I've been and will continue to be for the next four weeks incredibly stupidly busy. So this episode might be a little bit shorter, but that doesn't mean that it's any less important of a topic. In fact, I think that this topic is really, really important, and it affects pretty much every human at some point in their life, whether that's positively or negatively or both. Everyone will deal with some sort of libido situation at some point. That's right, this episode is all about libido and the science behind wanting intimacy. I know we've kind of talked about this topic before, but that was more the science behind getting turned on and horny and how libido comes through in a female sexual disorder. This episode is going to be a little bit different, but before I get ahead of myself, let's finish up some housekeeping thingies first. First and foremost, Nothing that I say today or ever should be considered medical advice, and you should always speak with your physician before making any changes to your healthcare regimen. I'm going to do something I haven't done before on the podcast, and that is to give you guys some ideas for natural treatments that can be done to boost libido. Now, not everyone should do these treatments, and not all of them will work for everyone, and make sure that you ask a provider before taking them if they are safe for you. Second, right now, please go rate and review the podcast. This is really, really helpful for me in learning what you guys like and don't like about the podcast, and it helps to get the podcast into the ears of new listeners, which is always ideal. If you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast yet, I am still giving away free swag to those of you who do, and you just have to send me a message afterwards and tell me that you did it and where to send the swag, and off it will be sent. If you don't message me, you won't get swag because I have no way of keeping track of these things on my own. Third, and this is related to number two, you can contact me with questions, concerns, topics of interest, things you loved, things you hated, speakers you'd like to have brought onto the show, and literally whatever else your little heart desires on Instagram or TikTok at sassyspeculum or sassyspeculum at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, www.sassyspeculum.com, and there's a contact form on the main page that you can make anonymous if you'd prefer to keep it that way. I will answer anything and everything, even if it is anonymous, so don't be afraid. Also, on my website is my waiting list for when I start practicing this fall. I'll be practicing in the Portland area and will be taking insurance, so sign up for the wait list to make sure that you have a spot when the time comes around. I'll probably start seeing patients in October or November of this year. And finally, but very important, this episode is brought to you by Momotaro Apotheca. This is a certified organic and cruelty-free vulvovaginal care line that works to support the body's natural ability to heal instead of fight against it like antibiotics do or antifungals. If you're someone who has been on the, I took antibiotics for my bacterial vaginosis and now I have a yeast infection cycle train forever, 
Antibiotics are not the best choice for you. You want a product that will support and encourage proper vaginal growth and not hinder it. Momotaro Apotheca's products are all plant-based. They work gently and effectively to address the most common issues that we women have the pleasure of dealing with. And the best thing, they really truly work. I've tried them myself and they're phenomenal. Something I've been dealing with for years suddenly disappeared after just four days of use. Their products don't interfere with your pH balance, hormones, pheromones, or any medications. They have products for daily care, pre- and postpartum, after-sex care, menopause, yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis, UTIs, lichen sclerosis, and also for symptoms like dryness, itchiness, and overall irritation. I spoke with one of the founders on the last episode of Sassy Speculum about her journey, the amazing products, the patriarchy, safe sex, and so much more. So go listen to that one if you haven't yet. And if you order um, from Momotaro Apotheca today, you'll get a discount of 20% off with code SASSYSPECULUM. That's all one word and all in caps, S-A-S-S-Y-S-P-E-C-U-L-U-M. And I promise you that you will not be disappointed with the quality and effectiveness of these organic plant-based products for whatever vulval vaginal complaint that you might have. Their website is www.momotaroapotheca.com. That's M-O-M-O-T-A-R-O-A-P-O-T-H-E-C-A.com. And use the code SASSYSPECULUM, all one word, all caps, to get 20% off your order. And I will link their website um, in the show notes. And with that, let's get to the episode. The science of libido primarily falls under the field of sexology, which is the scientific study of human sexuality. The history of sexology is a rich and evolving field that has emerged over centuries of study and exploration of human sexuality dating back to ancient cultures even. Many ancient civilizations had an interest in understanding and documenting human sexuality. Ancient Egyptian, Greek, Indian, and Chinese cultures explored various aspects of sex and sexuality through medical texts, religious writings, and artwork. I told y'all when I started this podcast that you can take the philosopher out of school, but you can't take the schooling out of the philosopher. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I majored in philosophy in undergrad, and I love to talk philosophy any chance I get. So here's a bit more. In ancient Greece, there was a significant culture surrounding beauty, physicality, and sexual expression. Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle relished in the Greek god of love, Eros, and the relationship love has to the human experience. And to the relationship love has to the human experience. My first philosophy class ever was actually called the philosophy of love and sex, and the first writing that we read was Plato's Symposium, and ever since reading that, I've been madly in love with philosophy. This is a text that explores the nature of love and desire from different perspectives, all while seated at a dinner table. Aristophanes presents his account of the origin of love, suggesting that humans were originally whole but were split in two by the gods. Love is the longing to reunite with our lost other half. Socrates, as portrayed by Plato here, questions the nature of love, arguing that it is not solely focused on the physical but also involves the pursuit of wisdom and truth. In ancient India, the Kama Sutra was born. This is an ancient Indian text that discusses various sexual positions and techniques, as well as guidance on maintaining a harmonious sexual relationship. It explores the pursuit of pleasure, translated as Kama, as one of the four main goals of life. 
It aims to provide guidance on fulfilling sexual desires and cultivating love through the psychology of love and attraction, discussing the different types of women and men and their compatibility. It also explores the art of seduction, offering advice on the use of perfumes, cosmetics, and other techniques to enhance one's attractiveness. The Kama Sutra is widely known for its sexual content, but it also touches upon broader aspects of life, including social etiquette, aesthetics, and personal well-being. It has had a significant influence on the understanding and exploration of human sexuality over the years, and continues to be studied and referenced as a cultural and historical work. Ancient China also has its own text, The Art of the Bedchamber, which emphasizes the balance of yin and yang energies in the bedroom, and the need for the cultivation of sexual vitality through practices like meditation and other techniques. In ancient Rome, we had more of a medical approach to love and sex through physician Galen, who contributed to the medical understanding of sexual health and anatomy, discussing topics like contraception and sexual dysfunctions. Roman society had a complex view of sexuality, no doubt making it difficult for erotic texts to be published, but Roman art does often depict erotic themes. In these ancient cultures, the study and understanding of sexuality often intersected with religion, philosophy, art, and medicine. These early explorations into sexy time laid the groundwork for later advancements in sexology that came from Freud, Masters and Johnson, Von Kraft Ibing, Ellison Hirschfield, and so many more. Because of all these people, we now have a whole research field of sexology and even human sexuality classes offered in colleges around the world. There was one offered at Oregon State where I went, and it was always the first class to fill up every term, and it was incredibly difficult to get into. My roommate took it and loved it, and there was always that one dude everyone knew who would say some shit like, oh, I don't need a class to teach me how to have sex, or I'll teach you about human sexuality. Every damn term. We always had one. These sexologists who have devoted their careers to better understanding human sexuality have found so many different factors that influence libido. Of course, it can't just be one button that accidentally gets switched off or gets a dictionary dropped on top of it. Like everything else in the body, it's complex. The first very obvious factor to libido is our hormones. Hormones play a very crucial role in regulating sexual desire. Testosterone, in particular, is associated with libido in both men and women. Many people think testosterone is only present in males, but it is also an important and abundant hormone in women's health as well. In addition to contributing to sexual desire and arousal, testosterone also maintains bone density and strength in women, reducing the risk of osteoporosis, promotes the development of lean muscle mass, regulates mood, energy levels, and overall well-being in women. It also influences cognitive function, including aspects like memory, spatial abilities, and attention, and lastly, it affects body fat distribution in women. Some other main hormones that affect libido are estrogen, progesterone, and dopamine. Dopamine is actually the star player here, and I went into dopamine a lot on the FSD episode, but a brief review for those of you who haven't listened yet or who have listened and have forgotten. Dopamine is linked to our experiences of pleasure and satisfaction. During sexual arousal and orgasm, dopamine levels increase, providing a pleasurable sensation and reinforcing the desire for future sexual encounters. Dopamine is our reward system. It tells the brain, if I do this, I will be rewarded and feel good. It's our feel-good hormone and gives you a sense of pleasure and motivation to continue doing that thing that makes you feel good. So, as you can imagine, a healthy person in a healthy situation 
would see a sexual encounter and their body and their brain would say, hey, if I engage in this, it's going to feel good. Let's get this thing going. One important distinction to make is between dopamine and serotonin. Many people view serotonin as the happy hormone and therefore might think it's correlated to the happiness one feels with sexual encounters. Both dopamine and serotonin do similar but opposite things. As previously mentioned, dopamine controls motivation and desire as well as cravings, but it also influences mood, sleep, learning, movement, alertness, blood flow, and randomly urine output. Serotonin regulates the sleep-wake cycle, also mood and emotions, metabolism and appetite, your ability to think and concentrate, body temperature, and blood clotting. High levels of dopamine can lead to feelings of absolute euphoria and bliss, which is why drugs and activity that increase dopamine are so easily addictive. Dopamine and serotonin often have opposite effects. While one makes you hungry, the other tells you that you're not hungry. Or while one increases your chances of being compulsive and jumping headfirst off of a building, the other puts you in bed and tells you not to move. One of the most common prescriptions that I see are patients on antidepressants. There's an antidepressant class called SSRI. This is your Zoloft, Citalopram, Prozac, and Fluoxetine, to name a few. SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, and its job is to keep serotonin around longer in the brain and cells in order to decrease symptoms of depression. Now, because serotonin and dopamine do very opposite things, If serotonin is continuously hanging out in high levels, your body is being told, hold on, we got serotonin, we don't need you dopamine, go back into your deep dark hole in the brain. Because of this, many people on SSRIs have low libido. It's the number one most complained about side effect. While many people who discontinue their SSRIs do see a gradual return of their libido, this side effect can actually exist for months or even years. Obviously, mental health is incredibly important, and if you are depressed, taking an SSRI might be the best option for your situation, and it can be life-saving for so many reasons. It's unfortunate, however, that choosing one aspect of your mental health forces you to potentially have to close the door on another aspect of physical, emotional, and mental health. There are also some antidepressants that work in a different manner, and those can actually boost dopamine. Another factor that influences libido is psychological factors. I've talked a ton about this on other episodes, so I won't go too in-depth, but obviously if you're feeling stressed out, unhappy, or don't have a great body image, your desire for sex will most likely be pretty low, and that's totally okay. As long as you're making the steps to change these things, it's okay to not want sex if you're already going through some shit. Another piece of the psychological pie is your past experiences of sexual encounters. If you have unfortunately had a really scary or bad experience with sex, this could put a major damper on both libido and how much you enjoy and want sex. This is because your brain has equated all sex to that scary time, and there's a rewiring process that needs to be made in order to change this. Your relationship dynamics and quality also influence libido. You need to be able to communicate and trust your partner while feeling comfortable enough to experience such an intimate time together. On that same note, you also need to feel comfortable in yourself and trust yourself enough to truly enjoy the act of sex as well as masturbation. And the last piece of the libido pie is cultural and social factors. 
If you were raised in a household that shunned sex or prohibited encounters with the opposite sex, this could have a pretty strong hold on how you still view sex, even now as an adult. Now, I know that this can actually swing both ways. I had quite a few friends growing up who were Jewish Orthodox, and I can tell you that many of them were not as innocent as they were being raised to be, which is also totally fine, as I personally don't believe that anyone's sexuality should be mandated. I think everyone should have the ability to explore naturally and feel ready when they're ready, not when their religion tells them to. But even if they swing more touchy than not, there is still a bit of information that snuck into their subconscious and influences the way that they think about sex, masturbation, their own sexual preferences, and more. There are so many nuances to what strengthens and weakens libido, and just like pretty much anything in medicine, there's no one right answer to fixing a libido issue. One really big piece that I didn't mention yet is the role chronic illness plays in libido. According to the CDC, chronic diseases affect 133 million Americans, representing almost half of the population. And many Americans are living with two or more conditions. Many chronic diseases can obviously cause problems with sexual function, like diabetes, heart and vascular diseases, neurological or autoimmune diseases, and due to the way our current world thrives, recent research has shown that sexual dysfunction in couples is one of the least talked about symptoms of chronic illness. This isn't limited to libido issues, but also includes erectile dysfunction, vaginal tightness or dryness, dry orgasms or retrograde ejaculation, and a decrease in orgasmic intensity. If this is something that you want more information on, you can listen to episode 6 for further information. That episode is all about FSD, or female sexual dysfunction, and is much more of a deep dive into dysfunction outside of just libido. As I've also discussed at length in other episodes, predominantly episode 2, regarding orgasms, there is what's called the sexual response cycle, which is an emotional and physical cycle of desire, arousal, plateau, and orgasm. Any illness or treatments for these illnesses can affect any one part of the cycle. For example, arousal and plateau require intact vascular and parasympathetic nervous systems. Orgasms require an intact sympathetic nervous system. And orgasm intensity is affected by muscle tone. Chronic illnesses in general tend to disrupt the desire and arousal phases. For example, diabetes, which 1 in 10 Americans have, is a blood sugar disorder. Obesity, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, and depression are common comorbidities with diabetes, and all of these pieces can have an effect on libido and sexual function. For example, diabetes changes levels of testosterone and estrogen due to the high insulin levels classic in a diabetes picture. High insulin signals the ovaries to produce more testosterone and to lower a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. This protein grabs onto both testosterone and estrogen and takes them to their appropriate tissues. With a low sex hormone binding globulin, free estrogen and testosterone will increase in the blood, and one can experience symptoms of estrogen or testosterone dominance. These can both affect libido, lubrication, and the ability to become sexually aroused. Diabetes also affects blood flow. As I mentioned, diabetes means there's high blood glucose, or sugar, levels in the blood, and high blood sugar causes fatty deposits to form inside the blood vessels. Over time, these deposits make your blood vessels narrow and harden, therefore lessening blood flow. 
So with diabetes, blood can have a difficulty getting to the vagina appropriately, which is needed for libido and sexual arousal. Diabetes medications and the nerve damage associated with diabetes also have significant implications in libido, and pretty much all chronic diseases have sequelae just like these affecting all libido. So pretty much everyone at some point or another will experience low libido, and that's completely normal. If you're not feeling so hot and you're not so bothered by it, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong or that there is something to be concerned about. There is no such thing as a normal level of sexual desire. How much and how often you're interested in sex varies from woman to woman and person to person. Our culture continues to push that if you don't want to have sex, something is wrong with you. When that is actually a male-derived thought process that is entirely inaccurate, our culture pushes self-help articles, books, sex toys, supplements, herbs, aphrodisiac foods, all of which I will get into, but... These aren't just supposed to be a magic fix, but they're also supposed to turn your bleh sex life into a full-fledged, swinging-from-the-chandeliers sex monkey every day. So if that's just by itself doesn't clue you into this being a male thought-up concept of female libido, I don't know what will, because I don't know any women who are swinging from the chandeliers acting like a sex monkey every day. So how much sex you're having is not really an issue. As long as both you and your partner are happy with it and communicating about your feelings and needs. If you're never, ever, ever in the mood and you're a healthy woman and it's bothering the relationship or it's, it's causing problems, this may be something to look into and talk with your doctor about. Moral of the story is that it is completely normal to not feel in the mood all the time and there are lots of things that can affect you feeling like, don't fucking touch me most of which are fairly benign, but it can be a sign of something being amiss in your body or mind, if it's persistent. Now, moving on to what you can do about it. If your lack of libido is something that does bother you or, and or your partner, that's usually when it's time to make steps to figure out what is going on and what's actually causing your feelings. There are about 4 billion options out there for things that you can take to increase libido, and in all honesty, I've tried quite a few of them. So I'm speaking from experience here when I say that the most integral piece to fixing your low libido is addressing the root cause of your symptoms and not just throwing expensive supplements down your throat whenever you find something on the internet that looks good. That being said, I am going to list some natural treatments that have been clinically proven to be effective in improving libido. Not all of these will work for every person because, like I said, your root cause of low libido is the one that we're trying to fix. Not mine, not the person sitting next to you or the girl who wrote the blog that you read last night in the dark after you had to say no to your partner for the 10th time this month. And as always, this is not medical advice. Please talk to your provider before making any changes to your healthcare. The first and my absolute favorite herb ever is called maca or in Latin, Lepidia mayeni. It's a root vegetable from the Andes Mountains, specifically in Peru where it has been eaten, baked, roasted, or even thrown in soups for over 3,000 years. It traditionally has been used for improving the fertility of humans as well as livestock. It's actually a part of the brassica vegetable family, like cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and kale, and contains phytonutrients as well as many vitamins and minerals like B vitamins, iron, magnesium, essential fatty acids, and antioxidants. It falls into a class of herbs called adaptogens meaning it works by supporting the body's resilience to physical, mental, and emotional stress 
by supporting adrenal health. As you all know from previous episodes, our adrenals are our stress friends. They work really, really hard to make hormones and to keep us balanced in our stress management. So getting our adrenals healthy is a key point to healing someone in naturopathic principles. Despite the multitude of studies done on the efficacy of maca in treating libido, of which there has been actually quite a few studies, they haven't figured out an exact reason why maca works so well. But in general, maca has been shown to support the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, which has an overall positive impact on hormonal health and sex hormones. Maca also supports normal production of one of our hormones, luteinizing hormone, which plays a big role in both male and female libido. Through promoting health of the adrenal glands, it supports healthy levels of our sex hormones and is used in overall women's health blends very often. It has been clinically studied in rectifying SSRI-caused low libido, which is what I just talked about earlier, where people who take antidepressants experience low libido during and after their antidepressant therapies. In addition to improving libido, it has been proven to support energy and mood, fertility, and reproductive function, and has excellent micronutrient qualities, so much that it's been called a nutritional powerhouse and superfood. Another herb very well known for its libido-boosting qualities is Damiana, or Ternera diffusa in Latin. It is in the nervine class of herbs, which means it affects the nervous system, It is one of the oldest aphrodisiacs used on Earth, and take this with a grain of salt, but according to Bon Appetit magazine, it's the closest thing we have to love potion number nine, apparently. It was used in indigenous Guaycura in the Baja region of Mexico, hopefully I said that right, originally taken during religious ceremonies, but was later banned due to its passion-inspiring properties getting out of hand, apparently. Another fun fact about Damiana is that it is actually illegal to possess, grow, or sell the herb in Louisiana, as in 2005, the state tried to outlaw anything that apparently even remotely resembles pot, and apparently Damiana is one of those, and apparently it's it's considered a hallucinogen. Now, I've never smoked Damiana, so I can't confirm or deny that, but I can say that I never once hallucinated while taking it orally. So, I don't know what to tell you, Louisiana. It works by stimulating the nervous system and increasing blood circulation. It has a life-enhancing and stimulating effect on both the mind and body, and many prescribers will suggest it for mild-moderate depression, anxiety, and nervous exhaustion, as well as a low libido. Some other less-known herbs are clavohuasca, a traditional South American herb used as an aphrodisiac for centuries. It's said to be a strong sexual stimulant and increases libido in premenopausal women, so that's all women who have not yet entered the perimenopausal stage. One of the ways it does this is by increasing blood flow to the pelvic area specifically. Cordyceps is another one. Yes, the mushrooms from The Last of Us. They are especially beneficial to boost sexual desire in women who are menopausal or postmenopausal. This is because it works by enhancing the formation of hormones that have usually decreased during this time in our lives, like cortisol, estrogen, and testosterone. It was apparently thought to be the secret weapon behind the success of the Chinese women's athletic team at the 1993 Olympics, which I didn't know. Um, Ginkgo biloba is another aphrodisiac due to its ability to improve blood flow to all parts of the body for all ages. 
And also it can revive a sex drive in women who are perimenopausal or menopausal by balancing hormones. Shatavari, also known as the queen of the herbs, has been proven to increase blood flow specifically to the female genitals, therefore enhancing sensation, sensitivity, and increasing vaginal lubrication. It also has the ability to balance hormones. The last herb I'll talk about is albizia, also known as the tree of happiness. It comes from the flowers and bark of the mimosa tree, and is most valued to help with anxiety, stress, and depression. It is very nourishing to the nervous system and is very helpful for those who might feel overstressed and moody as a result of the stress. It acts very similarly to pharmaceutical antidepressants by enhancing all neurotransmitter secretion and regulation, which means that it's allowing the neurotransmitters to hang out in the system longer so you can reap the benefits from them more. This is the same thing that antidepressants do. On top of being a powerful antidepressant, it also significantly increases blood flow and circulation. Research has also shown that albizia contains antioxidants that work specifically in the amygdala to fight free radicals that cause inflammation and damage. That was a really big sentence, so let me break it down for you. Albizia contains antioxidants. Antioxidants are a substance that remove damaging oxidizing agents within the body. They search around for what's called free radicals from the body to prevent them from doing damage. In the case of albizia, the free radicals that are specifically hanging out in a part of our brain called the amygdala are being fought in order to decrease inflammation and the permanent damage that they can do. The amygdala is a very special part of our brain that's primary role is in processing memories, making decisions, and regulating emotions. If you and your friend are both watching a scene unfold on the streets in downtown, wherever you live, you will both process that experience very differently because of the information that your amygdala holds. One of you may have negative experiences with shit going down on the street, and the other one may have been raised breaking up these situations. Both of you will experience the exact same situation, but will remember it and feel very differently about it based on your past experiences. This is due to the amygdala. So you can see that an herb that is going to help clean up this area of the brain would be very beneficial as an inflamed amygdala is only going to lead to a pretty negative outlook on life. All right, that's it on herbs. The general consensus on herbs is that they need to support nerve function, boost blood circulation, and regulate hormones. That was the overarching theme between all of those herbs. And lastly... One question that I got from a listener is about food aphrodisiacs. What's the science? What's the truth? Will eating oysters and chocolate and asparagus really make me horny? Well, the bottom line is this. There has been absolutely no evidence found proving that any one food will heighten sexual desire or arousal. And there's been quite a few studies on this. The hunt for an effective aphrodisiac has been a constant pursuit throughout history. With scientists looking at the constituents of food and their ability to increase our dopamine, serotonin, cortisol, and other hormones. There is one exception to this, however. Alcohol. Alcohol consumption, especially red wine, has been indirectly linked to improved sexual function, most likely because of its potential benefits to heart health. But as I'm sure many of us have experienced... It can also significantly impede sexual performance if there is too much. 
The research behind red wine has been inconclusive because the link is actually probably more related to diet, lifestyle, and genetics than just red wine. Wine's reputation as a potent aphrodisiac mostly is derived from its connection to the Mediterranean diet, a diet that consists primarily of plant-based foods, fish, olive oil, and wine, and is low in sugar, cheese, and meats. The people who follow a Mediterranean diet are typically the healthiest people in the world, and the healthier you are, the more you exercise and live a healthy lifestyle with low stress and a good diet, the better your sex life will be in general. One study with over 600 women who had all been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes found that the Mediterranean diet was linked to lower levels of sexual dysfunction. The focus of this diet supports nerve function, blood flow, and hormones, which are the exact same three aspects that I just mentioned all of those herbs contain. If one can improve those three aspects in their everyday life, one might just get a swinging from the chandeliers kind of sex life. Because you're treating your body as a whole and supporting the different pieces of your life and body that need that little oomph of support, that little extra kick. But you may be wondering, okay, well, I've definitely chowed down on some delicious oysters and have gotten horny from them. So, Adrian, you're just wrong. So why do some people swear by certain foods having aphrodisiac qualities, but their research says otherwise? In all honesty, because some people really do believe they will improve their libido. It's a placebo effect. Oysters have a very limited evidence of having an effect on sexual desire. But also, a true randomized control trial has not been performed on oysters and libido. And this is mostly because the placebo effect is so big. As I've said, libido is multifactorial. It's not just one light switch that you can turn on or off. It's physical, psychosocial, relational, and emotional with a lot of different variables intertwined. If you believe a food will increase your libido, you are fulfilling the psychological component. If all other components are met, then sure, it'll improve your libido. It's all about context. Every time you eat a Hershey's Kiss or bite into a chocolate bar, you're not thinking about how sexy you're going to feel in a few minutes. So why would it work sometimes and not others? Context. And that's really the gist of it. If you're thinking that it's going to make you horny because of all these things you've heard, it, it could. It totally could. Anyways, to finish things off, I'll just recap the main takeaways about libido. The sassy staples of today, if you will. There is no normal libido. Everyone is different, and you will be different every day as well. It's okay to have a different libido from your partner, as long as there is open communication about what you both want and need. As long as you're okay with where your libido is at, there is absolutely no need to change it. Libido is multifactorial. This is number two. It depends on hormones, stress, your relationship, the situation, overall emotional well-being, cultural and social factors, as well as your physical health and medications. There is not one button that can be pushed to fix a bothersome libido, but there are strings that can be pulled to all together improve how you feel. And number three, the things that do improve a libido best are hormone regulation, improving blood circulation, and nourishing the nervous system. Chronic diseases and unhealthy lifestyles disrupt these aspects of our bodies and cause a low libido. 
I've been trained as a naturopath to address the root cause of issues. So you won't see me giving my patients a magic pill that may or may not work and may also cause a whole host of other symptoms and side effects and probably not actually fix the problem, but might just like tamper it down for a little bit. I'm going to be supporting my patients as the whole person that they are so that they can lead a lifestyle that supports an ideal libido. And that's done through regulating hormones appropriately, improving blood circulation throughout the body, and providing adequate nourishment and support to the nervous system. That's all I have for you guys today. Thanks for listening. Here's our vagina rhyme of the week. Thanks to Marguerite Cutler and my favorite vagina rhyme book. My vag is a struggling poet, undervalued by society, hoping for better health care and reduced anxiety. Oh, that's actually pretty true. Okay. Um, please rate and review the podcast and reach out if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, new topic ideas, or really just to say hi. I love hearing from you all, and I couldn't be doing this without you and your support. Bye!